Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeva, and today we are off to the seaside. My guest is Peter Naldrit, author of Around the Coast in 80 Days, a guide to Britain's best coastal towns, beaches, cliffs, and headlands from Bloomsbury Publishing this year. This was a particularly lovely read during the COVID-19 lockdown. I'm based in Western Massachusetts, but reading about the charms of seaside towns such as Newbiggin-by-the-Sea, Folkestone, Rossilli, and Clacton-on-Sea, I could feel the briny wind in my hair and my stomach was rumbling for some battered fish and chips with salt and vinegar. Around the Coast in 80 Days doesn't just whet the appetite for the manifold charms of Britain's extensive coastline. It offers a curated list of sites, sounds, quirky traditions, and historical milestones and firsts for 80 of Britain's most attractive seaside venues. I learned, for example, about the origin of the tongue twister, She Sells Seashells by the Seashore, and where sticky toffee pudding was first invented, and about a mysterious grotto made up of over 4.6 million seashells, which may have been a pagan shrine, and I'm certainly keen to learn more about that. I have traveled to many of these places, but so many more were new to me. So I'm very excited to have the opportunity to learn more about Britain's enchanting coastline from Peter Naldrit today. And it gives me such good, great pleasure to welcome him to our podcast. Peter, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Ah, it's a great pleasure. And I loved reading the book. Um, and I wondered if we could start by uh, what inspired you to go on this journey around uh, Britain and, and what, what was the inspiration behind the book? Well, I do like to travel. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm a travel writer so with quite a few years experience doing different things um and i just love the seaside uh, <laughs> and i'm also a bit of a keen list person so i like some of the a lot of the books that i've written um i've got like a tick list uh, uh-huh. where you can go around and, and sort of say that you've visited each of these places so everything seems to fall in and the sort of title of it obviously has its origins with the classic jules verne um story oh, indeed Indeed. And uh, yeah, it all seemed to it all seemed to come together, and also there's a little bit of um the, the story about the around the world in eighty days is sort of how I got interested in in travel really and became a oh, really? geography teacher at school. Um, so there was a TV series in the nineteen eighties with the comedian Michael Palin from Monty mm. Python, and he did a sort of modern version of Around the World in 80 Days, and that sort of captured my imagination and got me interested in travel, really. So mm. I don't know, one day, I don't know where it came from, I just thought, wouldn't it be good if we did it around the coast in 80 days? And, and so it all came together. So did it take you 80 days or a bit longer? I, I wonder what your methodology was, how you went about yeah. doing the research, and, and how did the, what did that actually look like? So uh, the book is not really designed to go on one journey of of (laughs) an 80 days because i think if you did it in 80 days you'd miss too much so Mm -hmm. what i've I've tried to do is is create a book with 80 of the best places to visit around the coast and a lot of them can be day trips now that's a 
sort of concept that a lot of people in, in in some countries will struggle with the concept of a day trip to the seaside because they're a long way from the seaside. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Britain, of of course, fortunately, the furthest away you can be from the coast is about seventy two miles. So mm. everybody is within a two hour drive of of somewhere on the coast. And so what I've tried to do is get together the best places where you can have uh, a day trip to the seaside. Uh, with options of staying over, you know, making it a long weekend because there's just so much to do in these places. Absolutely. So did you work on this for a year or two years? Or? Probably two years, actually. Two years, yeah. yeah. Um, so some of them I did do as day trips and, and others like took um, a bit of a longer journey going off for two weeks at a time. Uh, but overall, it was a, a two-year program, yeah. And you've made it much easier for someone like me to kind of drop down into a place like Brighton and find the highlights. And I think one of the great appeals of the book, sort of universal appeal, is that you've got a little something for everybody. I think sports fans will find what they need, um, history buffs and, and bird watchers, nature enthusiasts. And I, and I just want to ask you how on earth you managed to winnow down so many appealing things into, I think, about three or four um, highlights for each venue. Um, what, what were the criteria that went into that? It, it was really difficult. I tried to avoid too much repetition um, because obviously, you, you know, most of these places have got beaches and, and things like that. But when you visit the place, maybe go to the tourist information office, do a bit of research online, you'll find out that a lot of them have got unique features, uh, place, things that other places just haven't got. Um, and the in the end, the three or four sort of must-do things for each destination um, stood out. And, yeah, we've got a little bit of sport in there. So Premier League fans um, of, of football, you've got Liverpool on the coastline. You've got Brighton on the coastline as well uh, and Southampton, which are Premier League teams, just a stone's throw away from the water. Um, and uh, like you say, there's a lot of castles on there, a, a lot of wildlife areas where you can go bird watching. So each area had its own sort of distinct three or four things to do and just try to get as much variation in there as possible. Right. and then But then there's some things that each um, seaside town have in, has in common and that speaks to the kind of tradition of the day trip to the seaside, which has a very venerable uh, place in, in British life, I think. And I wonder for our listeners who, who aren't as familiar with that, if you could kind of encapsulate what that zeit, the British seaside zeitgeist is and, and what are its key elements. Yeah, it's, it's something that runs deep in, in everybody that's uh, born here, really. Again, partly, I think, because we are an island and nobody is that far away from the seaside. Um, I mean, I live in Sheffield, uh, which is about as far away from the coast as you can get in, in the in the sort of middle of the country. And I'm about two hours away from both the East Coast and the West Coast. So um, mm. everybody is sort of on. Everybody has the potential to get there really quickly. I think we've seen mm-hmm. that in as lockdowns been eased. As soon as people got a little bit of freedom to go traveling, it was the coastal areas that they went to. And so right. the the beaches have been very busy uh, over the last few weeks because it's just a place that people normally flock to. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the history of the British coastline uh, and, and the traditional seaside destination started probably going back to Victorian days in the 19th century. 
um, and the places like Blackpool and Morecambe and Brighton became very popular for factory workers and place people working in the in the big cities like Manchester's and London. And as, as soon as uh, the union movement got bank holidays introduced and people got a little bit of more holiday time, they would all take off uh, to the seaside. A lot of it depended on where the trains were running to as well at that, that time. So the places with the train station managed to get um, the tourists in from the big cities. And in fact, some of the uh, places along the coastline were actually had train station train lines going directly to them for the mm. for, for the sole purpose of getting tourists to there from the cities. So the idea of a of a day trip to the seaside really is a, a Victorian one. Um, when, when people had the like odd days off work. In fact, um, one of the fa- most famous travel companies, which no longer exists, but Thomas Cook. Oh yes, Thomas Cook <laughs> was a person. A real person, Thomas Cook, in Victorian days, and he was one of the first people to um, sort of grasp onto this idea of people going on a day trip to the seaside. So he he put on sort of the first package tours, if you like, in, with travel and accommodation at the at the seaside for people. So and what was yeah, and what would they find when they got there? Well, as these to, as these coastal destinations grew, they became a hive of activity. So you would have um, really amazing like the- theatrical shows, uh, stand-up comedy, uh, family shows, um, um, amusement arcades full of um, you know like attractions. They would develop these vast ornate wooden piers structures that just go out into the sea, so people can go out for a walk, literally out to sea above the waves. Um, and all these things grew up as the coastal destinations um, gained popularity and more people went to them and they got more and more investment. They, they were properly, uh, I mean, certainly in the early 20th century, some of the biggest names in um, show business and entertainment would go to places like Blackpool uh, to do a, a, like a season of their shows in the theatre on, on the end of the pier. I mean, it was you know, comparable to the the sort of like Vegas kind of um, type of uh, residency, if you like, they would go and Uh they would, they would stay and they would do like a month on the, uh, on, on the pier doing a couple of shows every day. And because the places were so popular, you know, they did sell out for the entire run. And I think you mentioned in, in one, I can't remember which, which venue or region it was where Laurel and Hardy, were were a popular act. Is that am I remembering that correctly? That's right. So they were they actually did a tour uh, and spent a bit of time going round the seaside, the traditional seaside destinations, uh, Laurel and Hardy. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah, and and, and <laughs> extremely popular um, when they came back. You know, especially as they um, become famous uh, and people have seen them on the on the movies. And so all of that, the pier, the amusement park, the theatre, has, has in some venues remained and is still a, an attraction today. Is that right? Yes, it has. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, only recently I went to see um, like a band on the end of, of Blackpool Pier uh, with Damon Albarn, The Good, The Bad and The Queen, and it was a, a spectacular uh, thing uh-huh. just to see, just to be in the, the setting, this historical setting. 
it was uh, it, it was quite remarkable knowing that you know you're watching this thing and, and you're actually above the sea. But it would be unfair, I think, to sort of say it is as it was, mm. because as we entered the sort of 1970s, 80s, and 90s, there was a, a really significant uh, decay that set in to these uh, seaside towns. Uh, and a lot of them still haven't recovered, to be fair. Um, but as soon as we got into the 1980s, holiday habits in the United Kingdom changed completely because we'd got jet aircraft and going to Spain and Greece. And Italy became the sort of summer destination more than going to your Brightons and your Blackpools and your Cornwalls. Uh, so a lot of seaside, traditional seaside destinations really struggled in the 1980s and 1990s. And they've had a lot of reinvestment to mm. try to entice these uh, people back there. But a lot of people go there for the day rather than going there for the week like they might have done in the 1930s to, through to the 1960s. So um, they've had to really change the way that they market themselves. And, uh, yeah, some of them you can really see, like, green shoots and, and they're, they're really sort of booming again. Mm. Others still really struggling. And, yeah, some of them are a little bit grotty, to be honest. (laughs) But you also note that in a number of the towns, um, they've taken the harbour area and sort of done a massive uh, urban renewal project, like in Hull um, and I think Morecambe, you mentioned. Um, Tell us more about that. There's been millions of pounds spent on uh, redeveloping British seaside destinations because of this... um, sort of decline that we experienced a, a few decades ago. So we've got uh, one example is Morecambe, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of money being spent on the promenade at Morecambe, not to do anything, you know, massively dramatic, but we've got a bit of art in there. We've got some sculptures. We've got um, a nice pedestrian area with some gardens, with some water features, um, just making it a nicer place really to experience and that's been the key um factor a lot of these um sort of coastal towns just to try and smarten it up a little bit i think Mm. and and another thing that struck me reading reading through the book was the really staggering number of festivals that that take place in seaside towns you have liter a lot of literary festivals obviously music food that all makes sense and then there's some quite fun ones, more esoteric, like Padstow's Hobby Horse Festival uh, that takes place in May, which I, I've got to take my daughter to because she's a very keen equestrian and, and a hobby horse enthusiast. Um, if our listeners could go to just one festival at a seaside town, which one would, what, what would you recommend? Well, people, the, the seaside destinations love a festival, love a uh-huh. festival. Uh, and the, as you said, the extent of them and the range of them is, is quite astonishing. Um, and I think the reason there's a serious reason that it's done behind it, and I think it's to it's basically to extend the tourist season. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than just having people go there in, during the summer holidays, it's the idea. Let's try and get them here a little bit earlier, and let's lure them here a little bit later as well. If I was to choose one, I would go to a place in the northwest of England uh, called mm-hmm. Whitby, and mm. that's a stunning place. And the history of the Goth Festival in Whitby is oh, um, has its roots in the story of Dracula. So Ooh. Dracula 
um, Bram Stoker visited Whitby was um, inspired by the ruins of the Abbey on the on the cliff top there. And in the story of Dracula, when uh, Dracula comes over from Transylvania on the boat, he actually arrives in Whitby. Um, and there's a lot of Dracula-related uh, sort of theme shops and, th- and stuff in, in Whitby. And, and a couple of times a year, they have a goth festival uh, where people will go and sort of dress up in the most unbelievable outfits. And it is literally just a, a, a fantastic weekend to go in uh, and, and just to stare at some of the sights. Really, really interesting. And then at night, everybody hangs out in the, the small pubs that were had been frequented by fishermen for centuries. Fantastic. And you had a wonderful picture of that in, in the book. Yes. Um, yes. And- it is literally like an outdoor Comic-Con uh, for a goth. Uh, <laughs> and, and once a year as well, they throw a, a, an element of steampunk in there as well. So oh there's a, goodness. it's like the goth and the steampunk festival. And some of the, some of the costumes are stunning, really are. That's amazing. All right, let's let's now put you through your paces, Peter. Your book is divided into nine different regions. Um, you've divided Britain, which includes Scotland and Wales and England, um, and you move clockwise from Liverpool uh, around Britain and you end up in Wales. Um, do you have a favourite region uh, of these nine? No, I don't. I no, love them. I love each one for very different reasons. And I, I thought about that. I thought, oh, you might be asking, do I have a favourite area? <laughs> And and I don't. I think if you ask me on on a, on a given day four times, I'd give four different answers. I, I think wow. that uh, they really are just all very special for different reasons. Okay, um, but as the lockdown eases, where are you he- going to be heading to first? Um, I am going to be heading to Scotland first. Ah, okay. um, it's a bit of a trek. So, you know, we're talking to get to the north of Scotland. We're talking like a 10-hour drive from uh, oh, yeah. our, ha- our home. But um, when you get up there, um, it's the ideal destination, I think, to go as lockdown ends because there will be hardly anybody else there. There you go. Uh, <laughs> and you've got, you, you won't have to go very far at all before you find a beach that's just deserted and you're the only one on there. Oh, it's gorgeous. All right. Well, we're a little ahead of ourselves because we need to begin in the Northwest. And what I'd like you to do is kind of just go through each of these nine regions and give us a, wet our appetite. Don't, don't, uh, you know, go into too much detail, but give us a little, a short encapsulation so that our uh, armchair travelers can um, make their choice for where okay. they'd like to go in our lockdown. <laughs> so a few, uh, a few highlights from each of the regions. Yeah. So okay. we begin in the Northwest in, yeah, so around Liverpool. We start in the northwest of England. Uh, the book starts in Liverpool, and of course, in Liverpool, you have got um, you, you've you've got a couple of days you can spend immersing yourself in the history of the Beatles. But there's a fantastic Beatles museum there. There's a um, a sort of replica of the Cavern Club there, um, and there's a mystery tour. You can go on a magical mystery tour around Liverpool oh, to, to find the sites. One of the other real favourite things in the northwest is in a place called Morecambe Bay, um, which is very, very dangerous to go on the sands there because there is quicksand, basically. And over the years, there have been lots of people who've died there, some quite recently as well. But there is, a, in a place uh, called Grangeover Sands, there is a play, um, a person who whose job is called the Queen's Guide to the Sands. And he is the royal 
the designated royally approved person to guide people across Morecambe Bay. And this is more, it's like a charity walk these days, but um, you can book onto one of those and go for a three hour walk across uh, Morecambe Bay and you'll end up, you know, up to your torso in uh, in water at times. And you've got to follow <laughs> the instructions very carefully in case uh, it turns dangerous. But hey. it's a fabulous walk. That sounds gorgeous. So, so then you head uh, north up to the west um, of Scotland. Yeah, and which is I, where you say you're headed. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I if I had to choose somewhere to go there, I would be heading up to a place called Cape Wrath, which mm. is the most northwestern extreme place you can go um, in Scotland in the United Kingdom. Uh, you can't take your car there. You literally have to park in a layby wait for a ferryman to take you across a river and then wait for a minibus to pick you up and take you on an 11-mile drive uh, along a rickety old track to a lighthouse at the end there. And it's you literally on the edge of the world and sort of looking north across the uh, North Sea, knowing that it's like Iceland is the next thing. Iceland. <laughs> yeah, so that's absolutely, uh, absolutely stunning. Right. You need some whiskey to to warm you up. Yes, from that and point. <laughs> uh, that was another advantage because we uh, yeah we visited quite a few distilleries as we were going around. And in the west of Scotland, actually, Oban um, is a town completely fueled by whiskey, really, because it, it sort of grew up around its distillery, and uh, that's still very important for. Right, and so then we head east east scotland and what's the difference between west and east in in that part of the world um i think you probably get more uh sort of wild well you know (laughs) that's a very difficult question i think that between the as you go generally as you go further north in scotland it becomes far more like wild remote and barren and the Mm -hmm. generally the um the bigger cities are sort of further south. Um, I think on the western side, it's a little bit more remote than the east because on the, the east you've got sort of cities like Inverness and Aberdeen on the eastern side mm-hmm. and, and that uh, goes down to Edinburgh. Um, it was just a way of splitting the, the two mm-hmm. up, really. If I right. were to pick a place on um, the east coast, a, a highlight for people to visit, you, you've got St Andrews, which mm. is like the home of golf. And some amazing golf courses there, right on the edge of the water. And um, there's a famous cafe there where Prince William met Kate Middleton as well. Oh. And that was where they went to university. And the beach there is stunning. And it's where they shot the famous beach scene in Chariots of Fire. Right. And then a little bit further south, we've got um, South Queen's Ferry, right on the edge of Edinburgh. So you can get to do all the Edinburgh things as as well. But it's all about the bridges there, and the, the famous uh-huh. Fourth Road Bridge is um, is absolutely stunning, and, and right on the edge of that little um, tiny little town, which used to. And be... you've got some stunning bridges in this book. I mean, yeah. the, obviously that makes the sense. sense. But wow, I yeah, mean, the Fourth just... Bridge is my favourite. It, it, it yeah. really is. It's absolutely stunning, and South Queen's Ferry, it obviously, gets its name from the the ferry that used to go across the Firth of Forth to the place on the opposite side called North Queen's Ferry, and they, they were linked. Um, but then the, the, when the bridges came, it obviously knocked the ferry on its head. But, the, you know, the, we have a phrase in Britain called if, if a task is impossible or ongoing forever, 
it's called it's like painting the fourth bridge because ah. the fourth bridge is so big that once you finish painting it you've got to start again at the other side oh my goodness wow okay and then heading heading south we come to england proper we're back in england um and we're on the the sort of east coast um yeah what do we find there well a couple of places stand out really uh, one is bamba um there's a very famous castle, Bamba Castle, which was a few years ago voted the best view in Britain. And it's just this like magnificent sandstone castle on top of a, on top of some rocks near a very, very beautiful beach. Near there also we've got Holy Island, which is a tidal island. You've got to be careful when you can get across. You can only get across at low tide. And um, that has got a centuries of... Um, sort of religious history uh, around it and it was the place where the vikings first landed when they came and invaded uh, britain so um yeah a lot of a lot of history a lot of viking history a lot of um, history of uh, of monks and stuff and uh, dotted around there right and is the holy isle the same as avalon in the sort of arthurian legends or am i mixing those up um yeah, King Arthur. We've we've got King Arthur mentioned in the book, um, but he's at the other end of the country. He's at the other end. Yeah, yeah he's, <laughs> he's found a place called Tintagel. Um, right. So Tintagel is where King Arthur's castle is down in Cornwall. That's right. Okay. And and they've just actually spent a lot of money there um, because the place where the castle was used to be connected via a natural bridge, and that's fell into the sea. And they've just built a new bridge there, um, helping people get to what was considered to be King Arthur's castle. But no, Holy Island is is, is more Vikings, really, than Merlin. Right, okay. Yeah. I just had a, a fascinating author on last week uh, talking about Viking women, right. uh, which was really, really interesting. Okay, but we, we, uh, but we digress. Um, and we're heading south again um, to what you refer to as the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, and so the East Coast is um, a coast that's in places disappearing very, very quickly. Because um, a lot of soft rock there and, and sort of ferocious waves. And so there are some places, places where um, it's disappearing by a, a metre or two every year. Um, and one place, which is a beautiful place to walk to, is uh, called Spurn Point. And it's, um, it's like a coastal spit on the end of, um, and it's near Hull, actually. Um, and there's a little community living at the end of this um, road. But the road's been washed away many, many times, rebuilt and then battered again by the sea. And I think they've pretty much given up on it now. Um, so there's plenty of places on that east coast where you can see, you know, the power of the sea and, and how really it's uncompromising. And um, there's a, there, there are places there where you can see evidence of houses that have been washed into the coast. Uh, and there was one famous hotel that just disappeared practically overnight. And um, so very, very, uh, very dangerous. Also a place called Bempton Cliffs there, which is uh, one of the sort of centres for our coastal bird population. You can go on a boat trip out there and see thousands of puffins. And it's just amazing oh, how they will, they will leave the cliff, uh, go and get some, sea from the, uh, some fish from the sea, and then on these vast cliffs go to the exact ledge that they left from so they can feed the young. It's quite oh, yeah. amazing how they manage to do that. Fantastic. And then and then you head, um, you sort of swing south again, and we're still on the East Coast, what, what you call the Southeast. Yeah. And for listeners, 
for listeners who are already confused, the book has the most lovely map um, of all these places in the in the front um, that makes it very clear where you are and and how and how you're moving around Britain in that way. So yeah. we're in the southeast. Yeah, and I think great things to do in London, which of course is a coastal yes. destination <laughs> uh, because it's tidal in London. The the, the Thames, when you're in the centre, stood next to the Houses of Parliament, you can see whether it's low or high tide because it's tidal down there. There's lots of things to do in London. A place called South End in the southeast, which has got the longest pier in the world, um, mm. and literally it's a long walk to get to the end of it. And thankfully, there's a train that takes you over to <laughs> to the end of it. So you can save your legs as well. Um, probably my uh, favourite place down in the south um, east is Dover, though. Mm. Um, the castle there is just incredible. Loads of, of history linked to it. And, of course, Dover has also, for, for the traveller, got lots of, um, you know, connotations of going away. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're British, you... Most people have to go to Dover to get to France. So there's a long tradition of either getting on the Channel Tunnel or getting on a ferry and going on adventures. And did and you? I learned from your book that um, Hitler didn't destroy Dover Castle because he planned to use it as his headquarters. That's okay. right. That's right. Yeah. So you could imagine that on the southeast of England, there were places uh, during World War Two that got absolutely bombarded with um, during air raids. Uh, there's a place there called Margate uh, mm. and Ramsgate also. Um, and as the, the the planes went and sort of bombed cities further inland, but as they were coming back, because they had to lighten the plane uh, so they could get home, as they were going over, a lot of the time they used to throw off and, and discharge the bombs that they'd not used. So oh a, lot of, a lot of time the coastal areas used to get hit twice coming in and then going out <sighs> again. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of history of, of bombardment. Dover, because it was, it's literally, you know, 25 miles away from the coast of France over the English Channel, used to get hit a lot. But Dover Castle, as you say, right, probably the first thing that the planes would come to, they didn't touch it. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the belief there is that Hitler was going to use it, having taken over Britain, he was going to use it as his very sort of triumphant base, because it is that kind of, it has got that sort of grand feel to it and during the second world war it was used as a command center uh by the the british army and so if you've seen the film dunkirk about the evacuation there that was all planned from tunnels underground beneath dover castle in the famous white cliffs of dover there are actually secret underground tunnels in there and the the dunkirk evacuation was planned in those tunnels oh my goodness but there are no bluebirds in the white cliffs of dover no that's just a uh, uh, Which is really, really upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> no, you won't see a bluebird, uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, that's very, very upsetting. So let's move on. Um, so, uh, let's move to the extreme south, the south coast. Yeah, my standout place here is called, uh, well, it's, it's a stretch of the coastline, really, called the Jurassic Coast. Yes. And um, it, it's throughout the years, many fossils, dinosaur fossils have been found here. Uh, there's a very good visitor centre to visit there. And there's even sort of places where you can hire geologists' uh, rocks, uh, sorry, hammers, and head out onto the beach and find some of the beach, some of the rocks that have fallen from the cliff and, you know, have a hammer of them and break them open, see if you can find any fossils. And you will, you will find fossils. Oh, wow, fantastic. 
Fantastic. And then we come to, I think, probably my favorite part of, of your beautiful country, which is the Southwest. Yeah, so the Southwest. I think I'm not alone in that. Absolutely not. Um, so <laughs> during the summer months, you will find a lot of people heading down to the Southwest, partly because it's got the best weather, really, in the summer, and also because it's got, without doubt, I would have thought, the best beaches and the best coastline. Um, and a whole tourist industry has, has grown up around it. So these places are, in particular, Devon and Cornwall. I mean, these are places where I went every summer when I was a kid and then have taken my son and daughter there practically every year since they were, you know, three or four. It's a place where you get literally hooked into and you can't help but going back because they are just such fun family times that you have down there. So, and there's there's just I I think so many different things. It's it's like surfer heaven, um, and it's foodie heaven. I went to I went to food school there um, for right. a while in Padstow. Yeah, and um, there's just there's just so much to do, um, and it's so beautiful. And and a lot of people in in America are fanatic about um, the TV series Poldark, both ah, the right. old and the new. Yeah. And so they of course flock there like like crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of Poldark scenes down there. Yeah. And you, you've got a World Heritage uh, site right at the, the sort of very tip near a place called Senin, which has got a lot of the old tin mines there um, that, that are in those famous scenes. You have a place called Sentives, which is uh, where lots of artists flock to and they're doing, you know, there's lots of galleries there. And as you mm-hmm. said, there's places which are dedicated towards uh, surfing and surf schools. That's one of the most enjoyable days that, that we had when I was doing the book. I uh, spent a couple of days in a surf school. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it was like all of a sudden, within 48 hours, we were all beach boys, you know. Yeah, I, I've, been a, um, I've been a surfer widow, actually. Right. In, in my time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and, it's, that... it's very addictive. It, it, it really is. But even if you're not doing the, the full surfing, a lot of people go bodyboarding in, in Cornwall. Yeah. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just And it's, really it's almost semi-tropical. Um, no, it's not. Yeah. It's not. My next sentence was going to be, the water is freezing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it will take you 25 minutes or something to acclimatise in there, even if you've got a wetsuit on. So don't, don't, don't go to these places expecting okay. <laughs> tropical places but absolutely uh it's this essential thing to do right okay and so then the final region is almost another country um and that's wales yeah um, it is another wales. country a, a yes. completely completely different country which is as soon as you go into wales you'll have um all the road signs in english and also in welsh um mm-hmm. so it's got it's very very much got its own identity um and again, it's a marvellous coastline there, a place called, a national park called Pembrokeshire on the coast. Um, St. David's is the smallest city in um, the United Kingdom. Yeah. And um, beautiful cathedral there, which according to uh, legend was if you make two, pilgrimage, two pilgrimages to St. David's, it was the equivalent of one in Rome. So a lot oh, wow. of people, a lot of people went there, and it is actually the most gorgeous uh, cathedral. Um, and you make the point that the cathedral is sort of set down into mm, it's very like much a little hidden. valley. 
You and so you can actually see it from above, which is kind of unusual for a yeah, cathedral, you, isn't it? Yeah, you could only really get to see St. David's Cathedral at the last second as you as you sort of walk down this road. It's very much hidden in this dip. Uh, so you do get this glorious view down onto the top of it, which obviously you uh, you don't get with hardly any other cathedral. Yeah, oh, stunning. Mm. Which and so the Wales takes us back to um, back to where we started, which was which was Liverpool. Yeah, that's a full um, a full so we've gone trip. all the way around. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think listeners can can sense that there is so much to discover at these uh, each of these regions, and each is different. Um, and the eighty places that you highlight. Um, are each, I think, worth a visit for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, essentially, yeah. essentially, each one of the eighty places is the, the the book is is designed to be a catalyst for fun, for for to yeah. go out to explore these places and you know take the family and have loads of fun while you're there. And did your family go with you for a lot of the research, or, or yeah. yes, yeah. they will. Um, <laughs> yes, and the, the kids <laughs> loved it, especially as you can imagine, and. For a time, they were referring to it as around the coast and 80 fish and chips. <laughs> because, <laughs> because well, I was going to ask you because yeah. I love fish and chips. And where is the best fish, fish and chips? Right. This, oh, you know, I know. A controversial, <laughs> controversial uh, topic. And it has to be said that there'll be, uh, that there, are hard, there are hard fought competitions every year to uh, uh-huh. find out which is the best, best fish and chip shop. So, a place called Stonehaven in um, in Scotland on the east coast um, has got an absolute cracking fish and chip shop. Uh-huh. Um, it's called The Bay, and it's on the uh, beach promenade um, up there in Stonehaven. Stonehaven's an amazing place. It's got this um, sort of centuries-old tradition on New Year's Eve of having people swing these massive balls of fire around to, to see in the new year and to burn out the... Um, the Sort of demons of the past, so that's right. a, a great place to go for fish and chips. And also, it has to be said that there's a, an, another fish and chip shop in Stone uh, in Stonehaven, not too far away. Um, and that was the home of a controversial snack, the deep fried Mars bar. Yes, so, uh, I've we, had we've a deep got, fried Mars bar. Have you? Have They're you very good. It? They're yeah. very good. Well, they, I think there's a sign up in the shop as well that says they'll they'll deep fry anything for an extra fifty p or something. So you know you can take whatever you want, a, you know, banana or Snickers or whatever, and and see what it's like. But yeah, we've got two two fish and chip shops there. But if you go to any part of the sort of British coast, there'll be people who who um, really disagree with me and uh, will we'll, we'll, we'll point towards their own favourite own favourite. But the great thing about them. One thing that everybody does agree on, I think, is that there are obviously fish and chip shops all around um, yeah. the UK. We've got one just up the road from us, but everybody will agree that they taste a lot better when you're sat on the seafront eating them right. out of uh, out of paper, looking at the sea. Mm-hmm. And and you also give um, you give readers a a great sense of of where is the best crab and lobster and and all the other kind of seafood as well. Um, and I wonder if you could could just let me know what you thought the best meal was that you had around the coast. Right. The best, best meal, some people wouldn't call it a meal, but the best, uh, the best, best meal for me <laughs> on the coastline is a Cornish pasty. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, a, a Cornish pasty for people who don't know is, is sort of a, I mean, they would, it was designed by the, um, by tin miners 
who wanted a sort of sturdy way to take the dinner uh, to work with them. So this sort of sort of pastry sandwich almost was sort of designed with a with a meat and potato and vegetable filling, um, and that sort of tradition continues. So there's a lot of places in Cornwall where you can get a Cornish pasty. Obviously, the fillings are extremely diverse these days so you can get almost anything inside a cornish pasta you can even get uh sweet and savory ones so you can uh, you know i've had meat and potato cornish pasta i've also had apple and cinnamon cornish pasta mm. so you know you you might fancy the sweet or the savory but for me it's got to be the cornish pasta and i, I okay. always end up putting a bit of weight on when i go to cornwall because it's a, a pasta a day is the essential uh, and, and the good news is that there's so many good places to walk because you have to walk about 10 miles, I think, to walk off a Cornish pasty there in the bridge. Yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of coastal paths where you can, you can walk it off. Or maybe you yeah, have a game of football on the, on the beach or something afterwards. Yeah, and I, I, you know, speaking of the walks, um, you have so many great um, recommendations for, for walks, but um, are most of the coastal paths protected by the National Trust or how are they all maintained? The National Trust owns a lot of land, um, particularly mm-hmm. in Cornwall, um, but certainly not all the coastline. So the paths will be maintained by a number of different organisations. So some are some are National Trusts. In some cases, it's just down to the individual farmers that own the land. So um, yeah, there's <clears throat> there's a lot of different landowners I think in charge of um, looking after the paths. One thing that is on the horizon, though, quite excitedly, is um, going to be a, a path around the entire coast, uh, link, oh, wow. linking everything up. So that would uh-huh. take a long time to do. But while I was on this um, sort of expedition, if you like, going around <laughs> and, and, and doing it in my car, I did meet uh, somebody who was walking it uh, and sort of spoke to them. They just set out, so they were on about day eight or something like that, and he sort of told me about his Facebook page that he'd got and yeah, I sort of followed him on that mm-hmm. to, to check out how he was going on, and he was still doing it half a year later. So, oh it's, my goodness, <laughs> it's a big wow. undertaking. A big undertaking. It is. Okay, and where's the best beach in Britain? Best beach, I would go for a place in Cornwall called Sennen, where mm. the surfing is fantastic, and it's also got the things you need as a family. Like it's got the a, a nice shop, and it's got like a cafe and toilets and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, but literally, you are spoiled for choice when you're in Cornwall. Um, That's so true. Yeah, yeah. And and I I also wanted to you know Britain famously it rains a lot. But where did you encounter? Where do you think is the best weather? Yeah, that is another controversy. <laughs> Probably the best thing to do is if you manage to hit a beautiful week in Scotland. Um, oh, yeah. it, that that would probably be best to head up to some of the isolated beaches up there if you get the weather right. The chances are you're not going to get the weather weather right, uh, and you can you can bet that if you've booked a holiday up there like three or four months in advance, you, you're going to hit a lot of wind and a lot of rain. So the best right. bet for weather is to go down to the southwest um, to Cornwall, uh, and hopefully, fingers crossed, you'll you'll be in for some uh, sunshine. Well, the the golden rule is with the British weather, if it is if you wake up and it's sunny, you head to the beach. That's it. Because if you go down there for a week or maybe two weeks, you, you're going to get, you know, at least three, four, five days of, of wind and rain. Um, right. So you save the indoor, you save save the indoor things for for those days, 
And if it's sunny, you get out there and you take the sun right. while it's on offer. That's fantastic. So, Peter, you this was obviously something of a labor of love for you. Yeah. I mean, you, you say that you've loved the coast, uh, coastal region since you were a child, and clearly you're passing that on to your children. I wonder what surprised you the most while you made your expedition. Um, seeing some of the changes, I think, to places where I'd been before, maybe um, 15, 20 years ago, and seeing how mm-hmm. they seeing how they changed and and been transformed, but also the flip side of that is to seeing how places some places had just stayed the same, and mm-hmm. so you were able to yeah pass on things that you'd seen and done as as a child before, um, but it was also good. I used to I used to live in Morecambe actually for a short period of time while I was at university, and it was in the nineties. It, it was not a great place to live there. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been really nice going back there and, and seeing the improvement and seeing how much of a better place it is. And the same goes for Liverpool as well. I visited Liverpool in the 90s and a lot of cities were, um, you know, on, 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 the, on the downward slope during the 90s. And going mm-hmm. back there 20, 30 years later and seeing how much it has completely been transformed into, you know, one of the best cities in Europe, I think, it's been really surprising, yeah. No, I, I, more and more, um, I think it's included on travel itineraries and people are, are just loving Liverpool, for sure. Yeah, it, 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 has got, it has got a reputation now as a, as a place. And then, you know, not many sort of northern cities in England are like that as a place where you would go for maybe a long weekend uh, right. and stay there. And I was just, just talking to some friends the other day, actually. I'm from Sheffield in, in the middle. And Sheffield's not a place where you would come and spend a long weekend in, in the city centre. There's lots of countryside around it that's nice, but Liverpool's got it's it's got that sort of tourist attraction and that appeal. Well, with the way everything changes, you'll need to do an update pretty soon. Yeah, <laughs> book. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great thing about writing a guidebook. As soon as you're finished, boom, you have to start looking on the next <laughs> yeah, one. So, true. what is the next project for you? I know you have a book about underground Britain. Yeah, the Underground Britain was um, released last year, and uh, that is a guide to fifty of the best things to do beneath the surface of um, of the country. Which is, you know, again, talk about surprises. Um, I was, I didn't think there'd be all the diversity and things there are to do beneath the uh, the surface, but the, there are more people working in tourism now um, beneath the surface of Britain than there are in mining. So oh a, lot, a lot of these um, sort of old historical sites have been transferred, transformed into uh, tourist attractions. Well, the next thing for me is um, a journey to 200 islands around the coast of, um, oh, of, Brit- of Britain and Ireland. So that's going to be uh, out next year, I think. So those, those will be more sort of easy journeys where you just get in your car and you go and <laughs> or you'll be you'll be waiting for the and ferryman, then, I think. On a ferry. Well, I've already done quite. A few, I've already had a few rough crossings already. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we went to the. I went to the Isle of Man, and uh, yeah, there was a very rough crossing coming back from there. So, oh, 
maybe right. I didn't factor all these things in when I agreed to do it. <laughs> well, I hope you'll come back and tell us about all these I- to, 200 yeah. islands when you finish. Um, w- finally, then, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? And um, where can they get a hold of a copy of Around the Coast in 80 Days? Um, Around the Coast in 80 Days is available on Amazon and the Bloomsbury website. Um, and I have a website, which is www.peter-naldrit.co.uk. And I'm also um, on Twitter ranting about mm-hmm. various things with the handle at Peter Naldrit. Great. Well, we'll link all of those important um, pieces of information in the show notes. Peter, this has been a delightfully bracing uh, chat. As I sit in Western Massachusetts, I'm still hungry for some fish and chips. So thank you so much. We'll put plenty of salt and vinegar on them. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for joining us today on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and I will be back soon with another interview about a new book with its author. Until next time.